Hi there, and welcome back to Conversations with Father Greg, with an episode for Sunday, February 6, 2022. In this episode, I would like to introduce a new feature called Questions from the Curious, in which I take some time to respond to a variety of questions about the Christian faith. Let's begin our time together with prayer. Heavenly Father, may only your truth be spoken, and only your truth be heard. Amen. Our first question for today reads, If memory serves, your sermon is usually based on the gospel reading, and occasionally on the second lesson. Is there a protocol? Would you ever have occasion to preach on the first lesson? That's a good question. For context, Like many Christian traditions, Anglicans follow a three-year cycle of readings called the Revised Common Lectionary. Each day, the lectionary provides a reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, a psalm, one of the letters often called epistles, and a gospel reading. Following the lectionary provides a way for us to read our way through most of the Bible in a three-year cycle. The person who submitted this question is very observant. Yes, I do tend to lean toward the gospel reading. There is no protocol per se. Generally, preachers go towards whichever lesson appeals to them the most. During the Easter season, I will often preach on the Acts of the Apostles, as it gives us a good model for the first generation of the early church. For the last three Sundays, I've preached on our reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I've done this because I've done a lot of reading and research into the Corinthian letters, so they are very familiar to me, and I think there's a lot of meat in there for our modern application. I love preaching on the story of Jonah, which doesn't appear in the lectionary quite as often as I'd like. I think Jonah's story is somewhat misunderstood, and a homily on Jonah may not necessarily go where you might anticipate it to. I don't think that I've ever preached on the Psalms, except possibly on Psalm 23 at a funeral. I don't know if I've ever told you about a little game that I sometimes play in the back of my mind. On the rare occasion that I get to hear one of my colleagues preach, I first listen to the readings, and then I try to guess which lesson my colleague will preach on. Sometimes I'm right, and other times not so much. Our second question reads as follows. In the Creed, we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Does Anglican theology believe in an actual, physical resurrection of all of our bodies, and not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, let's see if we can address some of that question. Both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed each make two references to the concept of resurrection. The first reference pertains to Jesus' resurrection at Easter, and the second is as a general resurrection of those other than Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul stresses the physical resurrection of Jesus, and then goes on to make the following argument. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. There are other texts that give us examples of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. He appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. He appeared in the upper room where Thomas made physical contact with him. He even appeared on a beach where he shared a meal with seven of his disciples. These are some important examples of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. Aside from Jesus' resurrection at Easter, Scripture contains many examples in which other people experienced physical resurrection from the dead. Elijah brought a young boy back from the dead. Elisha also raised a young boy from the dead. In the book of 2 Kings, we have a record of a man being buried in the same grave as Elisha. This second man came back to life when his body came in contact with Elisha's in the grave. Jesus brought a widow's son, Jairus's daughter, and his friend Lazarus back to life. As Jesus hung on the cross, an earthquake struck. Matthew's Gospel tells us that several were brought back from the dead at that time. The Apostle Peter raised Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, from the dead. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. We begin to see that although physical resurrection is not an everyday occurrence, it's definitely not impossible, and it's not just something that happened to Jesus. The question remains whether or not we will all experience the resurrection of the body. The Gospels make several references to an eventual physical resurrection for everyone. Lazarus' sister, Martha, told Jesus that she was confident in a physical resurrection from the dead and that it would happen at some point in the future. On multiple occasions, we have record of Jesus making statements about life after death that, at the very least, implied, if not outright stated, a physical resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about having been approached by a skeptic who asked him to describe what our heavenly bodies would look like. Paul responded by drawing a parallel between our current physical bodies and a seed that is planted in the ground. An acorn or a sunflower seed don't look like very much of anything until they're planted and sprout into what they will eventually become. Both an acorn and an oak tree have a physical presence, and, in fact, you cannot have one without the other. However, they are also both quite different. Paul used this metaphor in direct response to questions about physical, bodily resurrection. Paul's response is widely understood to mean that while there will be a physical resurrection, it may not be exactly the way we expect it to be. The book of Revelation speaks to that change in part 
by predicting an eternity in which the faithful will not experience pain, suffering, or sorrow. At the very least, our resurrected selves will not be subject to pain, illness, and the aging process in the same way that our current bodies are. We don't have a definitive statement about how this resurrection will take place or exactly what it will look like, but we do know that we will be us and that we will be able to recognize each other. Our third and final question for this episode reads as follows. We are commanded to love God and to love each other. It is often said that God is love. Both Old and New Testaments also record that we should fear the Lord. To act from a center of love seems quite different than acting from fear. What is intended by the instruction to fear the Lord? Again, another excellent question. In the Hebrew Scriptures, we often see reference to this term, the fear of the Lord. The psalmist writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In contrast, we see the prophet Micah advising that all that is required of us is to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. In the Gospels, Jesus distills the entire law into two things. He says that we are to love God with every fiber of our being, and then we are to love others as we love ourselves. So, how do we reconcile these two ideas? The word yira appears in the Hebrew Scriptures over 300 times. It's this word yira that is often translated into English as the word fear. It could also be translated as respect, reverence, awe, or worship. How does this change our understanding? What if we read that text from the Proverbs this way? The reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or how about the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. It's the kind of word that you would use to describe something that is large and overwhelming. I remember as a boy, I used to lay on my back in the grass at night and look up at the sky. Sometimes, as I lay there, I would be overwhelmed with thoughts about how large the sky seemed and how small I seemed in comparison. That's the closest thing that I can think of to this concept of yira. We begin to see that this word has less to do with a sense of terror or fright. It has more to do with acknowledging the difference between God as creator and ourselves as a part of God's creation. Having said all that, I don't want to entirely dismiss this biblical concept. This sense of awe or reverence is important because it helps us understand our relationship to God and the world around us. Like snapping a puzzle piece into place, it helps us understand how we fit into the world and helps us gain some perspective. 
At its core, this concept of yira reminds us that when we turn our attention to the things of God, we are considering things that are somehow sacred and other. Like trying to fit the ocean into a measuring cup, our minds will only be able to perceive glimpses of God, never plumbing the depths of God's existence. There is, of course, another aspect to this conversation. In contrast to this concept of fear or awe, there are other pieces of scripture which tell us that love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. What if we consider these texts to be like threads in a tapestry? Can you imagine what might happen if we weave Solomon's words together with what we just read from 1 John? The reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. What begins with what could be an overwhelming sense of awe grows into a dynamic relationship that's based on love. Just as we see this kind of arc in our human relationships, we should also see it in our relationship with God. This is how the Apostle Paul was able to write, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Spirit of truth, you alone know the depths of God. Give us willing hearts to receive the truth you offer so that we might embrace your wisdom and align our lives with your will and your ways. We ask this through the Son who lives with you and the Father in perpetual light. Amen. If you have a faith-based question that you would like answered in a future episode, please email me at imfathergreg at gmail.com. I will include a link to my email address in the description of this episode. I look forward to hearing from you.